water's beautiful and the birds are working. We got a blue, it's gonna be over a thousand pounds, I'll guarantee you. Poof, here comes this monster out of the Gulf, you know. That's the meanest fight fish I think I've ever fought. It gets in your blood, it's like uh, deer hunting or turkey hunting, it's like you live for it. Golly, I, chances we need back in them days, we're lucky to be here. This is the East Pass Podcast. I'm Rachel Staples, and today I'm sitting down with Captain Wayne Fisher. He's been fishing the waters of the Gulf Coast since the early 70s and has been a mainstay on the leaderboards. He made his name chasing cobia in the many month-long and weekend tournaments from Panama City to Orange Beach. He's still riding the bar in the tower, although these days he spends more time looking for tarpon than ling. Thanks for sitting down with me today, Captain Wayne. Yes, ma'am, Miss Rachel. (laughs) Good to see you. Good to see you, too. So do you mind starting us off maybe talking about how you got into the business? I will. You made me think back. It's funny how our lives fly by. Um, we moved here in 1971, January of 71, and my dad was in the military along with uh, Peter Wright, which you're going to talk to later. We both moved from Alexandria, Louisiana, which had no salt water. So we moved down here, and both of us got involved in the, in the fishing industry. You know, you sort of gravitate either a surfer or fishing when you get moved to the beaches. Um, I started on the pier. Uh, I played football in high school, and I'll never forget the first day that I walked out on the pier was in the spring practice. Two boys that, that I played with said, come on and go with me. We're going to go out and try to catch a cobia before we go to practice. And we walked out there, and Ronnie Kirkendall, he played for Alabama until he blew a knee out. He... uh Call first shot, and I was looking, you know, just sort of looking, and a 63-pound cobia swam right down the bar, and he threw out there and hooked it, and we caught it, but we were 30 minutes late for practice. So we took the fish, and we we didn't gut it or anything. We just threw it in the back of the car in the uh, trunk, and we showed up at practice. Everybody was warming up, and uh, we jumped out of the car, and we uh, ran to the to Coach Townsell. He was, we were at Choctahatchee High School, and he uh, we told him what had happened. And he goes, "Really?" And he goes, "Let's go look at it." So we walked out and looked at it. And then Ronnie goes, "Well, you can have it, Coach. Sixty three pound cobia." He goes, "Well, thank you, Ronnie." He said, "Now y'all go put your stuff on and get out there. You're gonna have to run ten one hundreds for me." <laughs> I'll never forget that. We were mad, but but it, that that right there changed my life as far as cobia fishing or fishing in general to see a big fish on a spinning rod and that beautiful water i was hooked and um just like you said we've gone through several years of cobia fishing seen ups and downs um you know loved every minute of it i hate to say that i spent my early years making sure that whatever i did i could fish the month of april (laughs) but anyway it's um yeah, we've seen a lot of changes. Um, we had um, didn't realize you go through life down here on the beach, you don't realize things growing up around you back when we were young. Um, anyway, I fished on the pier for high school, junior and senior years, and um, really enjoyed that on Okaloosa and Crystal Beach Pier. I caught my first fish on Crystal Beach, which is you know, in Destin, a little small wooden pier. We used to stand up on the rails. I can't blame my mother. If she saw it, she'd have had a stroke, you know, a four-inch wide piece of timber, and we're balancing on it, running up and down it. But um, mates and and fishermen uh, on the boats, they fish the pier too, especially Crystal. But I decided I wanted to catch more, 
And back then, there were no private boats. There was one or two. I take that back. Uh, Frank Hilton, which is deceased now. Frank made our lures. He fished privately on his boat. And Jim Luttrell out of uh, Bruton, Alabama. Jim is here. Uh, he lives here now. Uh, he's a stockbroker. But his dad was a state farm agent in Bruton, and he had a boat. And he fished by himself. And those are the only two private boats on the beach. So... I got up, started off with William Frank Davis, who owned the Anastasia. Tommy Green was his mate. Um, the year before, the first year, let me go back, the first year that I got on a boat, Tommy worked with Tony Davis, William Frank's son, and Anastasia too. And they used to get me out of school as a junior in April. They would call down and say, come on, you need to go fishing with me. And back then you could get out of school. I had a lady told me if uh, the, the guidance counselor said if I'd bring her fish, she wouldn't mark me <laughs> as delinquent or whatever. So I'd bring her fish and she'd let me go. And uh, I got in with Tommy then. And then the next year, Tommy went working with William Frank Sr. And, and um, yeah, I fished with him a year. And um, he didn't cobia fish as much as Tommy Browning. Tommy was known as really the starting founder of boat fishing for cobia. He loved it. Um, he met his wife, uh, Janie. There's a picture in Bass Pro Shops. It shows Tommy standing up there holding a 30, 40-pound fish. Big old, you know, the picture's six foot big in Bass Pro. That was the day he met Janie. He went in there to get a haircut or went to weigh that fish, and she was cutting hair right inside where he weighed the fish in. Uh, you know, the salon was right beside the fish market, uh, fish store, and, and uh he introduced himself to her. She always tells that story, and they, you know, they wind up getting married after after that. So I thought that was really cool. But Tommy loved it. Um, I decided I wanted to switch over to Tommy because we fished every day. And back then, there was nobody cobia fishing to speak of. There might be um, a 10, 10 to twelve boats total in the fleet cobia fished. Everybody else snapper fished, bottom fished. They just didn't mess with them. They were trash fish. Um, so we spent the month of April out there every day, and we didn't see anybody, you know. And I love to tell the story um, to people when they first moved down here that when I was in high school, we'd be down on the beach down east, and there was no condos or anything. And we'd see deer on the beach, um, and you'd look at that beauty, and you just, why we didn't go, this sure is a gorgeous place. I can't imagine why a lot of people don't live here. <laughs> now... <laughs> There's a house every square foot, so what a big change. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of etiquette back then. Um, when we fished, you stayed behind the guy that was in front of you. We didn't fish deep water. We fished right on the bar. And you stayed behind the guy until he found a fish. And then you'd go around him while he was fighting a fish, and then you got what's called head beach. And then you had that until you found a fish. And then the next boat would go around. You would, put, you would hopscotch, but you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't cut people off. That tended to change. Which we got in the '90s, and a lot of people, private boats, you know, people not knowing etiquette, all about me. They're going to run in front of you, and you know, just a different world. Um, got to see a lot of fish. Um, got to catch makos. Um, there are a lot of big makos on the beach at one time. Tommy Brown, I've got a picture. I'll give you. Uh, uh, we had an 893 pounder, I believe, we caught on the beach, and um, Rachel's uh, father. Uh, father-in-law harold bought us a flying gaff because we had hooked this fish down off navarre and uh, we we got it up there and we couldn't get it in and we needed a flying gaff and he came over and handed us a flying gaff we were able to stick it and uh then bought it to the you know bought it at home 
And it was the biggest one in the Gulf for uh, several years up until um, the biggest one. I think Jason Hallmark has the biggest one now. It's over a thousand pounds. Over a thousand, thousand and twenty-eight pounds, or something like that. Just an amazing story that in itself. When you talk to him, it's incredible. Um, but you know, I, 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 it's funny how you drift back. This time of year, I'll drift back, and you never forget about the. Or you always forget about the bad days when you're riding around and getting rained on or something. You always remember the beautiful light southeast winds, and people going there. Or your guy standing beside you saying, "There they are, right there." You know, or seeing your friends hook them up. It's, uh, it gets in your blood. It's like uh, deer hunting or turkey hunting. It's like you live for it. I hate to say that. I mean, people have different passions. I've never been a drinker or a party or anything. Uh, mine's hunting and fishing. And on top of the fishing, the different types, um, Kobe fishing was always my first love. So what was uh, <laughs> what was your favorite jig to throw at him back then? It was a little bit different than it is now, huh? Yeah, it was. Got a great story about that. So we threw, when I first got on the pier, we threw um, uh, big bins and no alibis. That was the name of the, the lures. And Frank Hilton showed up from Pensacola, and he made a, a, a lure called a ding-a-ling. We still throw them today, even though he's passed away. His son makes them now. In fact, I bought four today, take with me to North Carolina. But um, I've got a picture of, we caught 21 fish one day with Raymond McClendon, was a big trucking uh, trucking magnet out of Montgomery, Alabama, and he had his sons. I got a big picture of it. We caught a bunch of fish, but we were down on the beach that day, and we were throwing what I just told you, and Frank said, why don't you throw some of my lures? He called us on the VHF, and our CB. It was CB radios back then. It was so early, VHFs weren't even there yet because it was 75, I think, and uh, he he rode over there and had a, a, a shoebox and gave us a shoebox of dingalinks, so I used my first dingling on that picture. I mean, I caught some big fish on it that day. And from then on, um, I've used the dingling for 40 years, you know, once we got used to that. They threw creek chubs. Um, we don't throw those anymore. When I first got on the boat, they had these these wooden um, lures that rode around on top. They had a big thing like a bass lure, and they wiggled. And they had big old treble hooks on them, and they'd throw them out there on top. And the cobias would eat them, but you had to be careful because they could stick you too. You'd be hooked to the fish. Um, we didn't have eels. That's really interesting. Uh, we threw um, mingo snappers. We threw uh, chofers, pinfish mostly for a live bait. Uh, and um, we used those forever. Or croakers. Um, and then in 1990, they'd been using eels for striped bass up on the East Coast for years. And somebody had some sent down here. And everybody has their own story. Um, you know, they just spread like wildfire because they didn't. These cobias had never seen an eel. You know, there's not naturally here. So, it, I mean, somebody goes, have you heard about the eels? No. Man, you throw it at them and they won't miss. They'll, they'll eat it no matter what. And they would, you know. So, all of a sudden, we become, we're like addicts. You can't go without eels, which we spent years fishing without eels. You know, so I thought that was funny. Now we pay four dollars a piece for eels, and you're not safe unless you buy a hundred of them. So <laughs> you got a lot of money in eels. And, you know, they some of them ball up, and you have to cut them off the line and let them go. So you just threw four dollars away. But um, you know, that was that's really interesting. That mm -hmm. that changed things. Everybody's going. A lot of people are going to braid. Old timers like myself was just talking this past week. We were talking with some friends, and we grew up using monofilament. Now. I'll use braid. I even use braid for tarpon. But 
I rigged on monocobia tackle because I've always used monofilament. I like monofilament. I don't like the cobia will shake his head a lot. And that braid, you can feel that rod going, doof, doof. I don't like that. You know, you want the, the monofilament stretches so you don't really feel the shaking. Um, but, uh, you know, the sunglasses, go back to them. I mean, we had, you know, basic sunglasses. There wasn't a lot to choose from. You didn't have Costa Del Mars or Smiths or... Um, uh, Canons or any of those, you know, all we had was just the one sunglass, and everybody wanted to wear amber. And you'd go buy them at a, you know, I don't know, you just get you know, um, what were they? Uh, just some of the old names, you know. Mm-hmm. And you'd put them on. Oh, these are great, but they were just basic sunglasses, you know. I'm sure when polarized ones came around, it was yeah. like seeing a whole new world. <laughs> well, they were polarized, but they, were they just polarized. yeah, but they weren't top of the line polarized you know we did yeah i wasn't that old those guys in the 60s didn't have them we had them in in the 70s so in the 70s is yeah, when they started they, coming yeah, along we absolutely had polarized um i can't remember the names of the glasses um i remember wearing varnays which are french uh i got a pair you know and we wore those i just saw them advertising and i wondered if they were even in existence but you know those are ski glasses but they're polarized and, and i remember wearing those several years uh, what's what's the most amount of Kobe you think you've seen in a day? Oh wow! You know I've been comparing that, Rachel. Um, I told you I've seen some. You know when you're in the middle of the seventies, it was really really good. And I've, um, I, I, I I'm gonna tell you a story real quick. This is probably the most that I'd have to I'd have to say. We were I was fishing with Tommy Browning. It was a beautiful day. It was. Flat had been stormy for two or three days, so there was mud on the surface, not down deep, but on the surface down west. I can remember this day in particular coming out the pass, everything that happened. Remember, we were on CB radios. We were coming out the pass. The Reveille was right beside us. Um, and then there was the um, uh, Tony Davis on the Anastasia 2 was coming out. Um, K.P. Burnett was on his boat. I'm trying to remember the name. I will in a minute. Everybody, um, Tommy wanted to go east. I said, which way we were going? We were still inside the pass. I said, we're going east or west. He goes, we're going east today. About the time, just before we got about midway in the jetties, I remember looking to the west side. I was looking down to the west because it was flat. Just, just, you know, I was standing on the back deck. Um, the CB radio came on, and Frank Hilton goes, Tommy, finest kind. Come on, Tommy. And Tommy, I said, he answered. He said, go ahead, Frank. And Frank said, where you at? And he's always breathing hard. Tom, he's always smoking. But he was by himself. And uh, and Tommy goes, we're coming out the pass. He goes, get your ASS <laughs> down here. I'm down west. And he goes, really? You seen any fish? And he goes, yes. He goes, I've got four on and I've got five in the box by himself now. He caught every fish by himself. He'd already put four in the boat. Five in the boat and had four on. So he had them in the rod holders. Tommy goes, where you at? And he said, I'm down off of um, uh, Herbert Field. And uh, so, and he goes, there's a giant water fish down here. Well, immediately when he said that, it's on the CB. Everybody coming out the pass heard him. There's some guys that going to turn left. All of a sudden, everybody turns hard right. <laughs> and we're racing down the beach to get there. So Frank, we're, you know, we're trying to talk to him. Everybody's listening. There's no price. It's not like a cell phone. And he goes, now, Tommy, he said, I've got these four hooked. He said, there's a giant blob like an acre of cobias on the bar and he said you can't see them it's just a big dark looks like bait underneath the mud and they're moving right down the bar and so we're all you can imagine the anticipation you're running for eight or nine ten miles down the beach and you're just waiting to get there so you know the revelies beside us they were a little bit ahead of us 
we we got them. I think the uh, KP was offshore. Tony was way offshore. When we run down there and we ran into it, we look up and go, okay, so there, there's the dark water. Went by Frank. Look up and go, that's got to be it right there. Never saw fish. It's just dark, just a dark look. You know, you can tell the difference, a big circular dark thing. And Tommy run right out there and just jerked it back. And uh, Kenny Johnson was mating with me. We both jumped out on the on the bow. We were on the um, back then. We'd stand on the eyebrow. We jumped down on the on the deck, and both of us fired jigs out there, hooked up. You know, double hook up. Took them down, came back up, hooked up. I think we had six or eight fish hooked up real quick. Revely pulled in there. They started hooking them. Um, Tony hooked up, came in there and hooked some. And then um, the reason I bring KP Burnett up is KP came in there. Him and Tony came in there and hooked some fish out of that wad, and they backed off. And the the wad kept moving, okay? So we're all stand, laying there fighting fish, and you could never see a fish till they got him up on surface. You just knew it was copious. But what I thought was interesting, we went back and caught, I don't know how many more we caught out of the wad. Then we left the wad. We said, we don't, we're going to we limit out here. We can't put anything else in. And we hadn't even done anything but just this wad. But Tony and KP sat there without ever moving. And Tony caught like 19 sitting just offshore. He drifted offshore with the ones he hecked, uh, hooked originally. And like KP had 17. So there's 19, that's almost 30-something fish that they caught out of the wad on one pass. And we had caught another dozen or so. We wound up leaving because I remember I go, why are we leaving? You know, I was going, Tommy, because you can't even see them. Let's go find some big fish. Went on down the beach, and we were finding, you know, pairs and triples. But that, I wonder, always wondered how big that water is because you couldn't. Normally, we find a water fish here on top, and you can go, oh, there's one, two, three, you know, whatever. This thing was just as big as your backyard. You know, you couldn't throw across it. It was so big. You know, think about that. If yeah. there was 50 fish caught out of it, you could still see a big knot of fish <laughs> moving on down the beach. So they were underneath this thing of mud? Yeah, the mud was only about a foot deep. So if you drove through the mud, you would have green, but it'd be brown mud on the wake of the boat. But you think you, they were congregating on that, kind of like a turtle or a... No, because the mud was, mud was the <laughs> just, length of the beach. It was all the way down there. It wasn't way off in the deep water. It was like it was pushed in oh, okay. by, but it was a, you know, like, you know how we get the storms and you have a mud? Mm -hmm. But this mud wasn't all the way down. It was just surface mud. It was weird. It was a chocolate brown or a tannish brown, but you go through it and make a, you could see a green streak as you went through it. I don't think they were on anything because it was just, they were just constantly moving. They didn't, a lot of wads, you hook them and stuff. They break up and you lose them. They go down. This thing, they never left the, they wouldn't leave the bar. They just kept, their people stayed on them. I remember looking back over my shoulder. People kept, the Revelee never left them. They kept hooking them and catching them. But that was, uh, you know, I don't have any fish. Um, I don't know. I, I know that we've talked before in the month of March, I've had a year where we caught 68 or 70 fish before April 1st. You know, I mean, the, my best year with Tommy, we had 450. I tried to keep count. It's like 460 or 470 for the month of April. And um, th you, when you start dividing that by days, it's amazing. Now, a lot of people love to say, and I'm here to tell you right now, this, they these new kids will go, Wait, that's why there are no fish. You killed them. Our fish have been here from the 70s all the way through the 90s. The numbers never changed until 2010. What happened in 2010? The oil spill. That changed cobia fishing. It killed, I don't know if it was the oil or the disbursement, but if you want to go back and you study everything, and I tag fish, they went around the coast. I've had them, I had the longest fish at large, and I had the longest distance at one time tag. I tagged one that went from here to North Carolina in nine months. And then I had another one 
that the range, I forgot how far it went in a short period of time. This is when we were tagging them in the 90s. We were just tagging them all the time. But um, that's the big difference. Yes, we caught a lot of fish, but there weren't a lot of boats fishing for them too. And back then there were no limits, you know. Now, Tommy did, uh, the day I, that day I just told you, we caught 21, 22. We had 21 by 1 o'clock. And it's the sun straight up and down. And I didn't want to quit. You know, we'd filled boxes. We'd taken their food out of their coolers and put them in the coolers. And I, he's going, hey, man, we need to go home. I'm going, no, we can set a record. He goes, no, we've done enough. Well, I was pouting. I sat on the I sat on the brow all the way home. I go, look, there's a pair. There's a triple. There's a water five. Let me catch one more. And he uh, he, uh, he kept saying no. And right as we got at the bar, coming across the bar, there was a pair coming across the bar. And I said, Tommy. Let me catch one of those. He goes, all right. So I hooked one, caught it. We put it on the boat. We hung the fish up. The fish is still shaking. We took pictures on the 22nd. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he stopped. Now, look, 22 is too many. But Tommy realized, you know, we didn't have anywhere to freeze and cool them. Um, I wouldn't do that now. You know, I mean, we all are more conservative-minded than we were. I think that the limits don't have anything to do. I think they'll limit a one per person, six per boat if it was a federal law. And a state and a federal law. It is a federal law now. And uh, but what's weird is Mississippi and Louisiana let you catch as many as you want, and or they do. They catch one per person as many people as they got on a boat or something like that. Might be two. Whereas everybody else, the federal law now is one per person, two per boat. And then some other, you know, all the states up north. Everybody's trying to watch them, but it doesn't matter what you do. They they dropped us down to two fish in the Gulf. That hadn't meant anything because there aren't any. You know, we, it's not that we killed them all. They killed them. Something killed them. And the disbursement, when you talk to some captains here and you find out what that disbursement messed a lot of fishing up. And they've dodged that bullet, you know. You said you still see them when you go to every year to North Carolina, yeah. though. You still see them really thick up there. Oh, yeah. yeah, I told you I saw I saw over 120, 130 fish the last day I fished. And it was just like here. They go north and south, south instead of east and west. The difference up there is the water temperature changes real quick, you know. Two mile area, you can be in 66 degree water. Two miles north of that, you'd be in 59. So when they hit that cold water, they turn around and come back. So I think while we see so many fish, you got fish coming up, and they hit that cold water, they're coming back. So you got them crossing each other. You know, they just they're going to Chesapeake Bay or up north to spawn, and when they can't get there, they they go back down to the warm water, wait for it to move, and then they come back up. Um, a lot long time they thought the cobias were coming all the way from Florida. Coming up the East Coast, some of them do, but they have the, the, a lot of the captains out there that I really, I mean, they're very knowledgeable. They believe that there's a a uh, a wintering place off of South Carolina, off there in the deep water, and that they don't really the, the main body of fish that hits North Carolina is off in a three, four, five hundred foot of water off the shelf, and they that's where they go for wintering, and then they come back in on the beach when they go migrate up into Chesapeake Bay. And those bays to spawn. Now, they go into the bay to spawn. Man, they got 80, 90 pounders swimming around people's docks up there. What's sad is they didn't know, they really didn't know that exists till about 10 years ago. There are people would fish them. I've talked to captains that are up there now, everybody and their brother. Now, they've got strict limits on them. You know, they don't even want you catching big fish. They want you to catch smaller fish. They can only catch two. Okay. But they got a lot of boats fishing for them. So there's a lot of pressure up there above it. Um, Everybody's concerned, you know, because they're such a good eating fish that you don't overfish them. Um, like I said, and they they're very good. I mean, I, like I, everybody uses a net in North Carolina. They don't gaff them. Uh, they tend to 
keep the smaller fish, when I say smaller, 20 to 40 pound fish to eat and they'll let a real big one go. They'll take pictures and, and get a citation, take measurements and they'll let it go, which I think is in, you know impressive, the big females letting them go. Hmm. So, um, but that's the, the big, you know, my, my wife goes, why don't you, when you die, since, why don't you, what's the, what's one of the questions you're going to ask God? I'm going, why, what happened to the COVID? <laughs> <laughs> because we can't figure out that's the big, you know, like here we're sitting here today and it's the 11th of April. I fished one day and I would have never in my lifetime dreamed that I would have that I couldn't cobia fish on this coast all my life. You know, my son loves it. That's why I go to North Carolina. He lives for it. He's ridden with me. He's 22 years old. He doesn't remember the first four or five years that he fished with me. We saw fish until the oil spill. He was born in 2000, so up to 10 years old. He says he remembers parts of it. But, you know, he's ridden with me all these years since 2010 and not seen many fish. You know, and he goes, wow, what's happened? What I can't figure out is why it destroyed the cobia run but it didn't really mess anything else up you know the snappers have come back strong um jacks triggerfish whatever the however they lay their eggs or whatever they were doing that disbursement i think it's disbursement that's my own that's my own thoughts now i don't have any scientific belief more than the oil because the disbursement was on top and cobias tend to swim on top i don't know maybe it made them um sterile but you would think even if it killed a bunch of them, they've been coming down this beach since God created them. Why would they not, the genetic thing, it didn't wipe out the genetic. The species are still there. We still see a few fish, and they're still trying to hit the beach, a few of them. But why? How could, what could, even if you kill, you know what I'm saying? I'm saying the ones that spawn that made it through, they're, they should be, their fish, just like a salmon, should want to come back down this beach on them in the spring. So you don't think maybe with, extra pressure and more traffic and more people out there targeting them you don't think maybe they've evolved to swing out hmm. more or anything no. I, I, I people say that all the time no why don't tarpon there's been more and more pressure on tarpon tarpon are getting thicker and thicker the, the tarpon fishery is getting better and better more and more tarpon they say that down south they say some of the the numbers just keep getting bigger you know, now we're not killing them, but we're still catching them. And some of them are dying, byproduct, you know, for, you know what I mean. Right. Um, when you're sight fishing, this has been my biggest argument. When I And I get very heated when I have somebody come in there, even guys I grew up with, when they say we destroyed them fishing, too many people fishing, we're not trolling for them. If it's ugly, southeast wind, southwest wind, raining, we can't get out. The cobias are still coming through. Then we might spend a week in the middle of the season where we can't get out to them. They're still going through. If it's cloudy, we can't see it as far as we can. You know, you know that. You've grown up fishing. I mean, if it's sunny, we can see a fish 150 yards from the boat. If it's cloudy, we can see 130 yards from the boat. You know, so really, when you cut that down, I don't care if you have more fishermen or not. And the fact that fish are up and down. They're not on the surface all the time. They come up at a certain time. They're up and down. Um, there's just no way sight fishing to destroy a species. There isn't. And they're stretched. Remember, we, we didn't even realize they are out in that deep water back in the 70s. Tommy Green was the first person to ever go out there calling deep water green because he, he would go out there and fish half mile off the beach for all of us, but you didn't have to. They were right on the beach. I think the bigger fish were out there all, those, all that time because um, I've got 500-pounders. I have got to ask about that. Then I've got, um, I've got another five or six i have one that's 99.9 .9. i've got 99.8 7 99.6 uh, or 96 nine, all bunch of 90s and okay so 
But what I'm getting at is uh, at one at, at, in the 70s, Tommy Browning had the only 100-pound fish that had been caught. And he caught it with Hink, uh, Henry Hinkle. And he caught it in May, and he caught it on a ray down west the first week of May. It was 103 pounds. That's the, remember, it hung. Everybody thought, man, this one catch a 100-pounder. And I've asked Tony, I've asked Tommy, all these years that we were fished, I said, you know, we just didn't see those big fish because – when you see one that's in excess of 100 pounds, I'm not talking about a 100-pounder. i got a 119, a 116, and I've seen two or three in my lifetime that were that caliber of fish, way over 100. They dwarf an 80-pounder. An 80 or 90-pounder is a big fish. But when you see one that's 25 pounds or 30 pounds bigger, it's noticeably bigger. You don't ever forget that. I mean, it's... Um, it's like different seeing a 30 pound then you see a 50 you go, oh no that was a big fish okay so we never really saw one that you would go wow that was a giant you know we go oh, that was eight that was a wide and that was an 80 pounder in the 70s but once we got out there not saying that the big ones in the 90s we were catching them on the bar too the big hundred pounders i don't know why all of a sudden we started seeing those really big fish um i go back to the, you know, the 119 was right on the bar, but it was 5, 30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon we found her. The 116 was off the beach. She was off there half mile, mile off the beach. Um, the other ones, the 100s, 107, 106, they were 100 yards off the bar. But, um, again, um, two of the times I caught 100-pounders, I saw another one each. Tommy and I both saw – one after we caught a 100-pounder in a box, 107. We saw a fish we thought was bigger, and we just caught the 107. So, I mean, we're looking. It's not like you're going, oh, it's another day. You're exaggerating. You catch a fish that 107 we caught with on the on the hood release with Preston Hood right beside Navarre Pier. We went down on the west side of Navarre Pier. We just caught it. We went down to the end of the house, turned around and come back, and we found a water four. And we were messing with them, a couple 50, 60-pounders in there, and I was laying sideways, and we had a little bitty old – the eels were really small – they they just weren't very good. We called them pencils. And we both, Tommy, and it was southeast wind about two or three. Tom, not Tommy, he hates Tommy. Um, we look up on a wave, and here comes a head as big as a, I mean, it was giant head. I said, look at the size of that fish. <laughs> we just called, he goes, that's a giant. And he threw a bait. We we reeled up a, a, ru um, a ruby lips, and he throws a ruby lip out there. It comes off the hook in the air. It just comes off the hook. I don't know how. Hits the water. Well, Tom, the minute it came off, he reeled up real quick and went back to get another bait. And I'm, I'm going, I'm trying to, I'm watching the fish. The fish jump or whatever. And, and then um, Preston Hood goes, wow, he ate your bait. And he goes, I don't have it. He goes, it ate the bait. The oh, ruby lip hit the water, man. was laying on top, and ran up there and <laughs> ate the bait. And then she turned and was coming straight to the boat. I'm laying still. And I'm going, Tom, hurry, hurry, hurry. And he ran up there with a deal that was just couldn't the wind it couldn't swim in it he throws it out there and the wind is blowing the line and the, the eels coming back with the wind to the boat and the dang big cobia put his lips on her she did put her lips on the eel but she wouldn't swallow it or wouldn't eat it and she followed all the way to right beside the boat and she went under the boat and we we looked for her for an hour and couldn't find her and i know she was probably 115 120 pounds she was definitely bigger than that one we had i know that um that the other story, the night uh, we caught it, um, I had um, uh, Jeff Schutz, who runs a Molly. Jeff grew up, he started fishing with us on the um, finest kind when he was in junior high school. But he and I, we call each other cuz. His cousin married my cousin up in Selma, Alabama. So we call each other cuz all the time. But he was fishing with me. Tom was fishing with me. Thomas Norville was fishing with me the day we caught the 119. 
and we had uh, fished. We found a big fish, and we um, we um, tried to get it to eat, and it wouldn't eat. And so we left the fish. This is down off the Eiffel Tower, which you call the Eiffel the Tower now. We went at least a mile and a half back to the east. It was four o'clock in the afternoon, and we didn't see anything. And somebody said, "Man, that was really a big fish." We left, and the fish was out in the deeper water. And uh, but the sun was beautiful, even though it was a late afternoon. There was no clouds, no glare, and it wasn't much of a sea. It was almost flat, so you could move. And they go, "Man, we ought to go back and look for that fish." And I said, "Do you think we can find her?" He goes, "Yeah." So I turned offshore and hooked it up, started running back, and we're running along there and. and Jeff looked in short and goes, there she is right there. And she was just easing along. And we eased up there without a leader. And we've caught, I've caught two fish out of the five 100-pounders without a leader, 30-pound test with just a hook. And, you know, people go, I can't, well, you know, we just, you got to get lucky, but you, you got to baby them. But we ran back up there and fired a bait out there and hooked her and um, fought her for, shoot, about an hour, I guess, and caught her. It was about 45 minutes to an hour. Gafter. I thought she was a hundred pounder. She was ninety six, eight, or something like that. And Tom Stewart climbed up in the tower, and I turned around to start running down the beach because we had to get home and weigh the fish in. the The, the scales ended at six or six thirty at Harbor in Marina Point. That was the only tournament going on. And um, as I'm running down the beach, um, Ralph Manjo was the gentleman fishing with us. He's he lives here, an older gentleman. Um, Tom climbed up and said, I said, that's a 100-pounder, isn't it? He goes, it's not going to make it. Well, it's close, but it's not going to make it. I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah. I said, I don't know. I think it's a 100-pounder. He goes, I'm telling you, it's not going to make it. Four pounds off, four, three pounds, two ounces. <laughs> and so uh, we're riding along, and I'm, I'm right on the bar, and the sun's setting. It's right around 5 o'clock, 5.10. And um, Ralph is on the inshore. I'm just riding down the bar. And he goes, oh, did you, we just went by a big one. I said, are you sure? He goes, yeah, it's a giant. I said, okay. And I didn't really believe him. I turned around. Everybody's downstairs because we're just running. I mean, we've got the day done. And I turned around, ease back straight up my line. I said, one of y'all get up here. Uh, Ralph said, there's a real big fish up here. And it was down deep. When we got right back up, he said, there it is right there. And it was down. It went on the surface. It was down a little bit in the water. And um, threw down there. And, um, we hooked it up. And... We were using 302, Mitchell Garcia 302s with manuals. That's our old pier reels. And when we hooked her up, the line on the spool had gotten underneath the spool. I mean, I mean, it got embedded in the spool, not behind it, but where you can break it off. In other words, when it got tight, it wouldn't stretch it. We had about 35, 40 yards of line to play the fish on. And I had to, I was backing down on her and keeping her from getting off in the deep water. I kept her on the bar, which I don't know, I can't believe I did that. But we knew we were on Everybody goes, man, we got to catch her. We got to catch her. So we, we just, on 30-pound test, now we did have a leader. That was an eel. And we just stayed on her and kept her, you know, and kept her in that shallow water. And she popped up. And Jeff and Tom both gaffed her at the same time. When she popped up beside the boat, I backed down real quick. Jeff stuck her in the, uh, I think, in the head. And Tom hit her in the tail. And they picked her up like this. And the minute they set her in, on the deck, I gunned it. And both of them, like, went off the back of the boat. <laughs> And because I was trying, I went, man, but, well, during the fight, I kept going, well, we're not, we're going to get this thing weighed in. We're going to lose. Now, I've got a VHS, VHS tape of us weighing these fish in at home, and I've got to put it on disc because my son's never seen it. Susan, my, my wife, here she was, you know, Carly was just born. Susan came down to the dock. She didn't know what was going on. We back in there, and, 
And we weighed that first fish, and everybody's screaming. And then we were going crazy because our big one's laying on the deck. And we're going, if that's not he's this son of a gun, we were going, it's got to be. Well, he walked up on the on the bridge running, on the, uh, and he goes, I'll tell you one thing, Wayne Fisher, that one's definitely over 100 pounds. I said, it better be. That's what said. <laughs> yeah. He goes, I'm telling you. I told somebody, I said, I'll kiss your butt if it's not over 100 pounds. <laughs> he go, but anyway, we we came in, and we weighed those two. And, um, you know, that was probably the, the greatest day. And that was one, 119? 119 and 96. Oh, my goodness. Then we had a, the day we caught the 116, we had a 91, and we could catch six that, that, that time frame. You could keep six. We had a, a 116, a 91, an 88, an 87, and a 77. And I've always wanted to have that in Tommy Holmes tournament where you had the four fish aggregate. Could you imagine what the aggregate oh was on that one? You can see them when you when I show you the picture of the one sixteen. You can see all those giant fish laying underneath them. So that was one day, not just over the course no, of the tournament. That was that one was day. In three hours. You know, a, a, a doctor um, Harris was fishing with us. He uh, he delivered my 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 kids, and um, he's retired. I don't think he does anything like that anymore, but. Super doctor, but he would go with me all the time. And he's been with me. Um, he's caught a uh, couple hundred pounders with me. Um, he caught, uh, I think he was with me the last hundred pounder we caught. Um, but um, yeah, that was incredible. You know, it was really was. That was a big, big fish coming through there. Um, like I said, there was one other time, I'm trying to remember which fish. There was one other time we caught a hundred pounder. We had a shot at another hundred pounder. We only got one of them. We lost. I think the biggest one I've ever seen, we hooked and broke off. Tom grabbed the spool down east. I, uh, Glenn Shelley was with me. And um, the year, I think it's the year we caught the 119. We found one down there that was so, it was 130 plus. It was a monster. She had a, one little male with her. And Tom had pulled the hooks on a couple of fish. And he was mad. So he, um, and was using 25 monofilament back then instead of 30 because he pure fished. And, uh, this fish ate a ruby lip two or three times, and every time he went to jack her up, she'd spit the bait out. And so I had her, it was a slick day. Slick, you know, you've been out there on those, like that day we tarpon fish, you could, like a mirror. And I, she wasn't afraid of the boat. I pulled right up there, you know, you take the rod tip and touch her. And he tossed the ruby lip down there again, and she, she just went, <laughs> sucked it up. And he freeze pulled a second, then he started jacking her. And he, you know, there wasn't 10 yards of line off the, from the tip of the rod to her mouth. And he's jacking her. He's going, you're not going to. And he's talking to her. And he reached down and, and he grabbed his spool. And he's going, going to get off this. And I'm going, let go of the spool. Let go of the spool. Let go. Pow. And I just freaking, I started screaming at him. And he's got a motor mouth now. He, he'll come back at you. He laid down on that deck. He wouldn't come up there. And I remember I was so worked up. My chest started hurt. Glenn Shelley grabbed me. You know, I was young then. He grabbed me. He said, "Look, it's you can't do anything about it." I said, "Glenn, I said that is a that fish. We will never see a fish that big. That fish was way over a hundred, way over. I don't know how big, but it was gigantic." He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "That was big." I said, "Man, it was unbelievable." We, you know, we never saw her again. I, I would, you know, you can always speculate, but like I told you again, hundred pounder is a big fish. When you get way over a hundred, they they they're just another animal. You know, and uh, you just don't miss them. I mean, you don't miss judging them that much. What's do you know what the golf record is for the biggest yeah. movie? Um Well, I think it's one thirty-one. I think um, the Hammerhead um, or one of those boys. I, know, uh, I can't remember that guy's name. That on the Hammerhead, he and his brother went out there, and he caught it on a jig as one thirty something. I think there's been two hundred and thirty pounders caught in Destin. 
I know Harold Offer had 130, but I think there's been one bigger than that, 134, 136, that that guy on the hammerhead caught down east. He and his brother, there was a pair, and they hooked both of them with their jigs, the story goes. And his brother, or no, he hooked the big one, and the other one was swimming around the little one, and the, the, his brother kept pounding the little one trying to get it to bite. <laughs> he kept getting it tangled up with his big ones. His brother finally said, if you don't put that rod down, I'm going to kick your butt. You're going to make me lose this fish. But, you know, they bought a giant in. But um, Have you caught any of your over 100 on jigs, or have they all been on live bait? All bait. All bait. Is that... That's all you'll throw. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. They get mad at me. I don't like throwing jigs um, at a real big fish. When money's on the line, you know, you want to make sure. The thing I worry about a jig is if they shake their head or you get any slack line and it, you lose the fish. Now, pier fishermen, you know, all the guys we grew up with, everybody wants to catch one little jig, you know. And they used to hate it because if it was a 70, 80 pound fish, I'm going, man, no, 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 throw a bait, throw a bait, throw an eel, throw, you know, no, no, no. <laughs> and they want to launch a jig as fast as they can. But, um, oh, well, you know, it's, um, we caught uh, some unusual things. We caught up the, down there one day down west. We caught a black fin tuna that day, Kobe fishing on a jig, and we caught a wahoo on a jig. Wait, did you see him and throw yeah. at him? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, throw a wahoo. Um, wasn't a big one, 30, 40-pound wahoo, but ate a jig, stripped a bunch of line off, That's and, then, and then stripped it off again, and we caught her. Yeah. I wish I could. I'll have to try to see if I can find that picture. Did you catch the tuna and the wahoo the same day? Yeah, yeah. A little black fin, too. Yeah, they were blowing up and fired a jig out there and reeled it fast. Boom, it ate it. So, so when did you catch your first tarpon? Oh, I've, I've, I've got a picture of my first tarpon off the pier. I, I won the... the um, the pass, a yearly pass catching tarpon. I, I fished on the pier for tarpon for years, all through the 70s and, um, and 80s. Um, crystal Beach until it got me. So you never got to see that. The smell of a crystal. That pier, you smell that creosote and poles. It was so, man, you just can't smell that anymore. The, all the old generation will never forget that. But anyway, uh, I did that uh, on the piers for a while. And then Tom Stewart, the boy, that, the guy that Kobe fished with me, I hadn't tarpon fished in, in years. I knew he was catching them. He goes, man, he goes, we need to take your little boat out there, you know, years of 20 in the early 2000s. He said, we need to go do that again. So we went out there and caught some. I went, oh, man, I do. I remember how much I like this. But we didn't know how to do it like I showed you last year. You know, it's it's really the trolling motors changed the tarpon fishing. Unbelievable. You know, it's it's exciting. I like I told you, it's 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 helping me with this bad cobia season. Is knowing that the tarpon are there, that we're going to have a good time with them. So, and you can't kill them. Um, I, when I was reading and doing the the uh, t-shirts, I, st- I went back and read the history, and I was telling you the other day, they finally uh, they were given some longevity on tarpon, and the longest tarpon on record is sixty three year old female that was in a aquarium. She was in there for sixty three years. Wow. Or 61 year. I don't know. They got her when she was a baby. Um, males tend to not live more than 25 years. Females live out to 63. Um, tarpon don't start spawning until their third year. I think that's what I read. Huh. That's interesting. That is interesting. Do you know um, what's the longevity on a cobia? Do you know that? They grow, I don't I think it's maybe 10 years at the most. We think they grow. Um, well, I'll give you an example, um, and I'll show you pictures and let you read the, the thing the guy sent me. I, I caught a 67-pounder three years ago, and 
when I come came home and gutted it to clean it, this battery-looking thing fell on the deck and went, you know, it sounded like a battery. And I reached in there and picked it up. It was a sonar tag that had been put in the fish. And it said, if you find this, it's a $25 reward. And it gave me a number to call. And um, it... Um, it was uh, it was amazing. I called the guy. He said, I remember tagging this fish five years ago off of Cape Canaveral. It was 12 pounds. Okay. So. 55 pounds over how many years five, ago? Five years. Five years. So he he told me he, it was on a, back, a bottom ray, and he, he tagged it. He said he remembered it well. The sonar showed that this fish swam back and forth from Cape Canaveral to... Um, to uh, the Keys four years in a row, and then it would go back up to Cape Canaveral. The fifth year, it came around the point and came up the coast, and we caught it. But I was going to... Um, that was the first year it had come up it come, this The way. first time it ever come around the coast. What made it do it that year? Isn't that interesting? That is. Um, I'm going to send you, because this would really be a... Uh, here it is right here. Look here. All right, so here... Here's the fish. Oh wow! Okay, okay. go just slant sideways. Go sideways, and um, it'll show the sonar. You'll be able to see the little sonar tag. Oh yeah! All right now, th now there should be a letter right past that where he sent me a letter. Is there a letter that tells? Cool, Kobe recap. Yes. Yeah. yeah, he he actually sent that to me, and you get to read what it did. That might be something you want to show. That somebody. is that is cool. If you don't mind sharing that Not with at me, all. yeah, no, you need that. Let's see. It says I got a call from Wayne Fisher just now, who I'm looping in a cobia fisherman out of Destin, Florida. Yesterday he caught a cobia with transmitter and as the ID number. I just looked it up. This was one of the first cobia we tagged all the way back in July 2015 here offshore Cape Canaveral. I actually remember this fish. It was one of about 20 we found riding the back of a rough tail stingray during a summer upwelling event. Anyhow, it's gotten way bigger and was 67.6 pounds when captured yesterday. Details are below. I don't know who's keeping the master list on these recaps, but I'll keep a local record as well. That is really cool. Isn't that neat? Yeah. And there's another letter. I don't know if I've still got it, but I'll have to send that to you. But it, that's when he went. That's when he sent me another update and said, I wanted to tell you that it bounced back and forth, you know, gave me the chart and told me what it did. Yeah. Because a lot of people think they do the same thing. Well, that's weird. That fish spent all those years, four years, bouncing back and forth, and then the fifth year said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go on up the east coast, west, right. the, you know, the end of the Gulf of Mexico. So there are no fences, you know. I remember long lining for swordfish with Wade Bailey back in the late 70s. We were off there in 200 fathoms of water, maybe 200 miles off. I don't remember where we were out there. We only ran about a five-mile long line. It was a small boat, 30-foot. And we were we baited them with Spanish mackerel. Trays of frozen Spanish. So when you finish the tray, they're a cardboard tray. They look about a yard long. You know that. People that are listening to podcasts might not. But the, when they freeze them, the Spanish mackerel scent gets all into that wax-coated box. And I was... I was littering. I was tossing the boxes off into the Gulf after I put them in the water to thaw out. And Wade was sitting up on the bridge, and he goes, look behind you. I turn around, and there was a great white shark eating the, the uh, trays like, pre like potato chips. I mean, it's a 12, 15-foot great white. And I knew immediately. I'd never seen one. You know, this is back in the 70s. But his eyeball was as big as a softball and was solid black. And one thing of mackerel sharks hitting a mako, it was gray. It wasn't blue. It was a giant black eye. And it was swimming right behind the boat. It'd come up there to eat them. And it'd be, I, I like, I, 
eight or nine trays hit each, each one i throw it out there and drift back boom and he did. i said golly and he goes that my friend is a great white and i said i know in the gulf of mexico and he goes if you go home and tell anybody in destin you saw a great white they're going to say you're full of it you've lost your mind well look what now there are four or five of them now that we see in sonars it's getting more and more common yeah. we're hearing about them yeah but we didn't think there's no way that one of those existed before in the gulf for all those years I came back and told anybody anyway. I'm like, I don't care what y'all say. I saw one. <laughs> so that was uh, that was neat. We were uh, talking. I think it started when I was talking to Tommy Browning the other day, and Killer Wells came up, and, uh-huh. and then I was talking to Alan about it, and uh, I can't remember who it was. He said the first person to say that they saw him, and everybody was like, "No, there aren't any out there." Yeah, yeah. And they call them False Killer or Killer Wells. You're right. right. Yeah. But I think there's a couple pods that actually live yeah. in the Gulf of Mexico. There is. Absolutely. We've seen wells out there a bunch. You know, I mean, yeah, you're right. Um, there's no fences. I love when people say that. There really isn't. Um, you know, I I always wondered back in the 60s before any of us started fishing, Tommy Nard will be able to tell you this because Tommy was fishing with Tommy Brown and back in the 60s. That seemed to be a real big heyday back then. People, there were no limits, a lot of fish. But they used to go out on the edge and catch sailfish in the fall. And they would do macro rallies where they went around tight circles. They'd find bait out there like they do in Mexico. And they'd catch eight or nine sailfish, white marlin, mixed. And they did that for several years in the 60s. Now, we can't do that now. But, I mean, he said, yeah. He says it's a macro rally. You go out there in four aughts and, you know, you're catching sailfish. And they got pictures of them all hung up. You know, they'd kill them. But, wow, you know, can you imagine doing that, you know? Um, I remember fishing with uh, William Frank and Tommy, 50 fathoms was unbelievably deep to go marlin fishing. We were on those gas uh, diesel wooden boats, and they were 12, 13-knot boats. You just never, nobody ever set foot in 100 fathoms. Didn't have a boat to do it. You just didn't, nobody did overnights. If they did, they stayed inside. Tommy Green bought the first yellowfin tuna in that had ever been caught in Destin. It was a, oh, man, he got a yellowfin. Well, <laughs> first time anybody ever gone out to about 100 fathoms, you know. Now we don't even stop till we get to 100 fathoms, you know. Um but um, um, it's just, you know, it, look look at what we've got into now. I mean, it, um, you talk to Jeff and them, the sonar, marlin fishing. This gotten so AI. They're talking about AI on the news now, artificial intelligence. But the sonar, some of these things are, you know, you can't compete in a tournament if you're trying to troll and these guys are using sonar because they don't lose the fish. It's amazing what they can do with those things. You know, they have to learn it. But to be able to ride along, go that's a that's not a shark, that's a blue marlin, and we're going to stay with her. To she, you know, they comes up to a certain depth, and they go, okay, now we'll bait her. She's hungry. That's wild. I mean, I can't get over that. You know, um, it is crazy seeing yeah. what they see on there, and then the certain little this curve. You can tell yeah. th- what kind of fish this is, what size, or it's, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, well, we put some good conservative controls. You know, trying to keep fish for future generations um i think everybody's more conservative minded now mm-hmm. um but <laughs> you can get so technical it's not fun i mean I, you still want to reel them up people that use electric reels and stuff what's you know just go buy it at the at the market if you're going to do that you know you want to be sweating when you reel a fish yeah <laughs> like to go out there with the light test <laughs> right. and, and yeah. find it give it a show you know <laughs> you know I, the look on your face when i asked you i said you want to get in the water with you well, yeah, can I? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, fishing. yeah, get in there. That's Let's awesome. Go. Yeah, it's <laughs> neat to do that and touch that big fish, you know? 
Uh, to me, that's cooler than anything because you're not worried about it getting bit, you know, um, and to touch something that powerful, you know. It's a very cool fish. That is a neat fish. And they gulp air. You know, when we were talking that other thing, they, their bladder can absorb that air. They really do use that for extra oxygen. We've been saying that for years, but I never read it. But now scientists, when you see them rolling, they're actually taking air in, putting it in their bladder to mix into the oxygen level to get their oxygen level up. So it is true. We're fighting them, and they're getting tired of we. You know, you see them come up and get air. They're 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 trying to replenish their oxygen. Hmm, that they're makes not, sense. They're the only fish that does that. Really? That's it. There's not another fish can go up here and use it for oxygen. That's amazing. That is. You know, that's really um, cool. So that's cool. <laughs> well, that's so. Um, I have a couple questions before I wrap up. I know you've got to get out of here shortly. Um, Before we get into that, I do have a couple just broad questions. So you've, you started, you've been tournament fishing Cobia since what, the seventies? Yeah. Is that, so they've done it since then. Yes. Um, But the money wasn't as big as it got. When would you say that peaked? When did the nineties, the nineties is when it really peaked. Yeah. 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 My 119 pounder, we won 19,000. I had a 78 pattern with Glenn Shelley on a weekend tournament. We won 96,000 or 98, 98,000 in a weekend tournament. No, no, uh, excuse me. We won 118,000. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I got too many numbers running ahead. <laughs> it's a 118. That's what we won with an 80, 78 pounder. Wow. Because we were across the board. Remember, the, some of those Calcuttas are $10,000. Right. Yeah, we didn't have that in the 70s and 80s. People with $500 up. That's one thing that's helping the, the East Coast. They don't have real big tournaments. Their top money is 5000 for a Cobia tournament. It's just like these Marlin. The more money, the, the more people want to fish because, you know, your head gets bare. Oh, I'm going to be famous. I'm going to win a bunch of money, you know. Whew. Think of those, charter, those um, Marlin tournaments putting 30000 up for a weekend. They're, with fuel and everything, they're spending $50,000. Oh, yeah. And they don't know if they're going to win anything. Some big money for sure. Yeah, you got that right. <laughs> Way out of my pay scale. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any other stories you want to share before we get into this? Feel free to share away. No, go ahead. No, you sure? Yeah. Okay. I'm sure. If, I, if I do, any, I will. Okay. I will come back. Okay. Some of these seem kind of redundant from what we've talked about, but huh. uh, what's your favorite fish to target? I think uh, I know you what know you're going to say. <laughs> you know, right now it's tarpon. Okay. It could be a second because we don't, they're not any here. Now, I don't know if I'd drive to North Carolina to catch tarpon, but I'll drive North Carolina to catch cobias because you can eat them. Right. Yeah. So do you think if, if, if the cobia fishing was as good as the tarpon fishing here, which one do you think you well, would? Well, I would still, you know, I wouldn't miss a day cobia fishing. We wouldn't be here talking right now. If no, we wouldn't. <laughs> we wouldn't. I'd be out there. You're right. <laughs> What's your most memorable catch? Oh, my goodness. I'm on the spot, there's just, you know, you got to really think for different reasons, you know. Seeing Carson catch his first cobia, you know, 25-pounder. My little boy was all excited. And he's, I'm holding a rod. You know, that's stuff you never forget. You've, you've, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look at Jed and his dad oh, tarpon. Yeah. I mean, I, I've looked at, watched that video with him last year on that tarpon with a rod between his eye, his legs all winter. You know, that's something he'll never forget. He's caught a bunch of fish. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard question. You know, again, I told you having that video, I can't wait to watch the 119 weighing a fish in that being that big. Um, I don't know. Which tournament was that? 
Do you remember? No, that's got to. It was the one nine, the one nineteen. What that tournament was that? Was, was it? Harbor Dogs. Harbor Dogs. Okay. Yeah, World Championship. Okay. And then uh, the day we caught the one sixteen, there were five hundred pounders caught that day. And when I remember pulling up at the dock, this little kid that was on the outboard or center console, he came walking out of the dock. He had a 103-pounder. And he looked down. Our fish was really short, but it was the circumference was unbelievable, like a tadpole. And he looked at our fish, and he goes, he's got his gaff, and he's pulling that fish. And he goes, well, it's nice. It's not going to beat mine. <laughs> but he walked back up to weight of fish. 116, he goes, son of a <laughs> I said, we got you, big dog. But. Um, marlin tournaments, you know, blue marlins are, there's some people, you know, you know, eat up with, I've never caught a giant, you know, I've won some money in tournaments, but, um, I love live baiting them like they do. That's, that's been a long time since I've done it. Um, but I'm more of a spinning rod kind of guy than I am conventional tackle. That's why I love the tarpon and Kobe is I want to do it on spinning rod, you know, it's fun. um, but they're all memorable now. Way I'm sorry I can't answer that. No, that's, that's okay. Um, what's the most unusual thing you've ever seen while fishing? Saw swordfish on the beach. I almost had it hooked. A little pup. Really? Uh, in October, we were going out there to catch mackerel on the beach. Ten years, fifteen years ago, and look up, and here comes a lit up swordfish this long. And we had her eat a, a pompano jig or a little white jig twice. We couldn't get a hook in it. And somebody we know, and I can't remember who it was, caught it the next day. They on the beach? On the beach. Not fishing on the beach, but I'm talking about riding down the boat. You know, right, right, Kobe is right. Yeah. Um, Tommy and I caught a Baskin shark. They can't even eat. It's terrible. I snatched it. We snatched it. Okay, so you were with them when it, when the first basking shark yeah. was. Okay, yeah. well, let's, let's hear that. Can, can we hear it? <laughs> we were riding along, and there were a lot of those little bitty blue minnows that were in the water. And we look up, we see this head sticking out of the water. What the hell the heck is that? And we ride up there looking to it, and it's a basket. Remember, they don't have teeth. That's what's terrible. And we rode around there looking at it, and it was eating all that bait. And I don't know, Tommy's got a picture of it. I don't know where it's at. But um, I said, you want to catch it? He goes, yeah. So we, I got a four-pronged grappling hook, tied it to a uh, four-aught. Yeah, four-aught or six, it's a four-aught, I'm pretty sure. Just snatched it, and we bought it to the dock. <laughs> when was that? That was in the eighties. That was in the eighties. How much did, did y'all weigh it? It was six, seven hundred pounds. Did you know what it was? Yeah, he did. He did. He did. Yeah, he knew it was a basking shark. Um, I, I, you know, feel bad about it now because he couldn't do anything. It's like a whale. You know, it hurt nothing. Makos. I am surprised nobody's gotten bit by a mako, and I'm surprised that more people. I only know one friend of mine that's had a mako eat cobias off the line when they have them hooked up. He had two hooked up in a, in a within the last ten years, and a mackerel came up, and ate both of them off the hook, just ate the ate them. And we see them up and down the beach during right. You know, it's interesting that you don't hear about it more often because that's and the people are swimming and and just that's amazing that nothing's happened. It really is because they get in there on the bars. Some of those things seven eight hundred pounds or a thousand pounds. You don't think they would hurt somebody? <laughs> you know that's amazing. Have you ever reeled in a billfish? Yes. Okay. I've caught a, um, not a blue marlin. I've hooked blue marlin, always hand them off. White marlin, our sailfish, I went down to Peter Wright uh, fishing in December, you know, out there on the, in uh, Stewart. And I took my big old Kobe rods down there and I, I caught, we caught 16 one day. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, we were catching them left and right. He was laughing at me, making a joke up at the store the other day. 
a week, couple weeks, a month ago, about me catching them on a nine foot rod on the back of a boat <laughs> instead of a boat rod. <laughs> I was having fun, man. I was I was reeling them in, but yeah, I've caught uh, that and white marlin. Um, you know, every time I've ever um, fishing for blues, I'm the captain, or I was mate when I was young. So I mean, you get them hooked, and then you hand them to somebody. You don't find them. Yourself. That's why I asked. That. Yeah, yeah, don't get to don't get to reel them in. Nope, nope. What about a swordfish? I've caught a. Remember, well, I, if you were long line, and I caught, that's... I caught way more of those than anybody else. <laughs> um, what was interesting, I found that uh, a swordfish is weird. When you go to, um, you grab the line to pull him up to the boat, he'll he'll try to hurt you. He's not like a um, like a mar- uh, marlin or a sailfish. Uh, we'd reach dinner. I had a couple times he'd slap me in my arm and just cut me to the bone. You know where he where he'd hit you, go pow. And, but if you got a hold of his bill and you got him on that deck. If you bend that bill back to his tail, it'll pop like a watermelon. His head will pop. It'll go, you'll break his head. And I'd do that left and right, make sure I killed him. <laughs> but um, no, we did. I've got pictures of, I got pictures somewhere where we caught one six, 700 pound swordfish, long line, big one, real big you one. You got pictures? Yeah, I got I got to go find them. I don't have them on the thing. That's cool. Um, That's a giant fish. Yeah. Yeah. If you could pick one thing you've never caught to catch, what would it be? Oh, I'd like to go to these places like um, striped marlins over in um, California, you know, where they, they pitch bait. Now that, you know, remember I told you light tackle? Those guys get to pitch those live baits, those striped marlins. That'd be, even though they're not real big, two, 300 pounds, that'd be fun as all get out. Um, these exotic places, everybody's going to get multiple shots. That's something I'll never get to see. I got, I went to um, the Keys when I was running the boat, and I went to the Bahamas, but I never got to go to Mexico or any of those really neat places that everybody else went off to. You know, you know, Jeff Schultz went to Australia for a year, worked on the Great Barrier Reef, and I remember him said, "Oh, and he spent a whole year down there. He went snow skiing in the summer and everything else. So that was cool." But. If you could go fish anywhere that you've never been, where would it be? That that's what that, 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 answers, you know, that, that. answers that. <laughs> that, would, um, that, that uh, I don't know if it's Puerto Vallarta. I don't know where the it's down there on the Cape in um, Cabo or one of those places where the striped marlin are. Yeah, I just and they're blacks too. There's a mixture of marlin. You know, it's pretty cool. Um, it's kind of a maybe a different kind of question for you but one of them i have down is if you could do one thing for a living other than you know be a fisherman what would it be well you know you got to remember yeah now you know that i was in the insurance business mm-hmm. i and i've got a hundred ton license i grew up running yachts and working on charter boats but i left there when i'm my wife goes i'll marry you how are you going to support us and i didn't want to do it in the fishing industry <laughs> although your husband everybody else right. i just went no i you know right. i don't want to do it for a living so you've got kind of a mixed yeah i kept my license there. and i ran boats but i got in the insurance business for 30 years so um, and I did that because I remember, like I told you, I could take, I could write enough insurance. I could take the month of April off so I could fish. So anytime I wanted to go fish or hunt, I had the freedom to do it. Whereas when you run a charter boat, you ain't got the freedom to do nothing but fish every day. That's true. Uh, if you could go fishing with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? <laughs> <laughs> Some of the best memories I've ever had in my life was with Tommy Browning. I can't say his name without smiling. You know, I love him like a daddy. My dad didn't like to fish or hunt or do anything. So Tommy raised me at a high school. I used to, even before I married my wife and I was living in Birmingham, I spent the whole, that one April, I'd fly down, I'd drive down here every weekend. I was working insurance and I'd spend from Thursday to Sunday, I'd stay in there, Tommy Lee's bed. 
because I'd fish with Tommy every day. But I had all those years with Tommy on that boat, you know, for the entire month of April. Um, and we just had so much fun. Tommy, he's, he's cut up. You know, he's always messing with you. Um, Tommy Nard, which you're going to interview, he is – Tommy's funny. He is so funny. Um, and we, I don't know if you know him good, but he just – you know, you can't – he just makes you laugh all the time. But that's that's my fondest memories was Browning, really was. What about the fishing industry makes you worry about the future of it, and what's the single biggest threat you see to fisheries? Wow. I I, I don't know if it's a threat. I think that they're. I think the guys that are coming along are managing their fish. I think they're over managing them. I really do. I think I don't like the idea. Even as not as a charter boat fisherman, when they when they take your husband and stuff, and they tell them that they they make the limit, you can only catch this fish this month, and then you catch this fish this month. So you're crushing this fish till there's almost none, or for however long, three months, and then we get this fish. So we're going to crush all that. If you had them all running continuously, then you can catch a good good a charter boat and catch a good. You don't have to catch a lot of them because you can catch a bunch of them. I get a jack or two. Snappers or two, groupers, you can catch a mess of fish. It's when you target that one species, you beat them down. You know that. Maybe that concerns me that fishermen have more sense than the people in the White House. You know, they got people out there that don't know anything about. They would throw up if you took them out there, and they're going to tell you how to, to do it. So, um, I don't know. I mean, uh, also, you got to remember GPS has changed everything. We started off with Lorraine A. You know, so, I mean, it was, you had to. <laughs> You had to ride around and look. Remember, they had the soap. I never get, did that. But when I came along, they had to look at the Lorraine A, and they get these two little dots, and they'd get those dots to line up, and then they would get within, you know, 50 feet of the place. You know, now that, you know, you find a pin on the bottom. Yeah, I love listening to, you know, the, them talk about that with the soap or the, yeah. you know, lining things up, yeah. and then and then Lorraine C came around, yeah. and that changed. It's, yeah. it's all very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, that response probably kind of plays into your answer to the next one for what makes you the most hopeful about the future of the fishing industry. I, the people, the young people that I see coming up, the generation's been passed on. Everybody seems to be pretty good. Now, I'm basing that on Destin because the, the guys that are coming up all fish with guys that I know, even though they've branched off. You know, they're, they're good. Um, little, um, Brant Kelly's son, Trey Wines, is a good little fisherman. Uh, Justin Destin, he's older. He's a generation between there. I think is is Alan older than Just, Justin? Yes, he how, is. How many? Um, eight, seven and a half, eight okay. years. Yeah, right. Alan's forty-four. Justin's thirty-six yeah. or seven. Okay, so these guys actually fish with the good guys that know what they're doing, and they become great. You know, your your husband Harold was unbelievable. He's taught Alan. Alan is, you know, I look at the catches, unbelievable. You know, to be able to do that now, as hard as it is to get them. Um, and they seem to be more conscientious, conscientious. They, they, they know that they only have X amount of resources. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think we got a good, good crew in Destin. Really do. Well, I appreciate you sitting down with me. You have anything well, you want to add? Any, any other things that are popping in your head? No, not right now. You and I have talked. I'm talked out. <laughs> But no, I really enjoyed it, Rachel. It really brings back a lot of memories. It well, thanks really does. for sitting it, uh, down and talking yeah. to me. I'm going to get some of these pictures and maybe yeah. some videos and stuff. That I'll you're do that. About. I'll, I will um, send you pictures. I'll try to find some other ones. I want to get that. I got to find somebody to move that VHS Cobia thing to a DVD so people can watch it. 
my son can watch it. I've got I got to get that done before it fades away. Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah, even DVDs. We've got you know now everything's gone to digital. I know. I, know. <laughs> to I got to do computer. something. I got to get it where yeah. I can get it to digital. Yes. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank y'all for uh, tuning in. East Pass Podcast. We'll check you next time. It was some fun back in them days, I tell you. You always remember the beautiful light southeast winds. So I thought, well, I'll come back when the groupers run. You know, how can you uh, completely go over a lifetime in an hour?